An Ember Legacy 600 is flying to Eduardo Gomes International Airport, its first of a few stopovers, when they need to emergency land due to some control issues. What caused this flight to be detained in Brazil? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hey, welcome back to the disaster show. Like that. <laughs> just like that. Hey, you just heard because <laughs> the cat came up here. Here she is. <laughs> it's the Vi show, really. At this point. If you guys only knew. We sent out merch. You should be getting your merch. If you were a patron that has joined recently, you should be getting your merch. Yes. Also, do we have any... Patrons to think? I don't think so. I don't think we've gotten anybody new since the last time I recorded. You might want to just take a looky look. Just in case. Just in case. Do we think Taris? Taris? I think so. Okay. We're good. Okay, cool. I think we're good. If we didn't, thank you. Thank you to those of you who have submitted stories. We have a whopping four. So we That's alright. We won't be doing stories yet. We'll be doing them probably at the end of this month, because this comes out in September. So Send stories. This is your public service announcement. Send help. Send help. The <laughs> one, two, three, four Internet Street. Yeah. <laughs> Check out our merch page. If you didn't realize we have merch, we have merch. So that, much. Uh, all the inside jokes are in the merch, by the way. There are so many. There's so many. You are violating things. my airspace. Yes. Please leave. That's Please leave. <laughs> Turtles and electricity is one of them. Yep. And people died is one of them. Yep. Were you wearing that the other day? Yes. Miranda That's the mad. one I have because I was supposed to get the other one and then you wore both and now it's gone. I don't know what happened anymore. So the next, time we, the next time we get merch, I get two t-shirts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Miranda Gets Mad at History is one of them too. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, check out the merch stuff. There's more than just t-shirts and stuff. There's like There's so much mugs more. and water bottles. There's everything you can think. There's okay, a beach listen. towel. Those water bottles are amazing. Best water bottle I've ever owned in my life. The only thing is I wish it was a little bit larger, but I could put ice in that thing and there'll be ice in it three days later. Like it's... Super Legit. insulated. Yeah. Super insulated. Water and other drinks, you don't have to put just water in there, but yeah. it Nick, stays the temperature it's supposed to be at for a while. Nick and yeah. I went camping with my dad, and it was like 100 degrees, and we had put ice in our water bottles before we left, and we settled down for the evening, and we're like, oh my god, wait a second. The water bottles were like scorching hot on the outside, but you open them up and take a sip, and you're like, it's ice. <laughs> <laughs> This is amazing. So there you go. I mean, if you want to just take a looky look, you can take a looky look. Yep. And that's my public service announcement for this episode. Yeah. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering November 600 X-Ray Lima. Thanks to who? Malu on Instagram. Thank you. For recommending this episode. This is a doozy. Buckle up. Strap in. We're going to be here a minute. And by a minute, we mean... Probably close to two hours. <laughs> a, few more, a few more minutes than a minute. A few more minutes than a minute. It's a good one, though. This accident occurred on September 29th of 2006. This was an Embraer Legacy 600 business jet. The tail number November 600 X-Ray Lima, in case anybody needed a refresher. And is owned by Excel Air, which we'll get into this a little bit. But this is a charter company owning business jets for charter. So a little bit of history on what this aircraft actually is. It is a business jet, and we are talking general aviation, but this is chartered for 
business aviation, basically. So it is a charter flight, technically. This is, we'll get into the more details about what this flight actually is. But this aircraft is a take on the Embraer 135, ERJ 135, which is from the E140, ERJ 145 family. So it's a small regional jet normally. However, the Legacy 600 has a much larger fuel tank, a few deviations in its design that make its flying profile a little different. It got winglets. It does have winglets. Eventually, they put them on the 145, the LR versions, but this was this comes stock with the winglets, and this is the business jet version, basically the 135, but much longer range. So It seats 13 passengers. But it's an ideal airplane for a lot of businesses, too, because at the time it was relatively affordable compared to comparable airplanes in its class. It's also tall inside. I mean, not super tall, but you can generally stand up in it compared to some business jets. And it seats a pretty decent amount for the range it has. So it's not like the best aircraft in the world, but it's pretty decent value for money for what it is. I was going to look up how much it is, but all of these say call for price. Yeah. At the time, in the episode, they quoted it as $23 million. Okay. That's reasonable. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) It sounds like a lot of money, but when you think about the fact that Gulfstream and Falcon and all these other companies, Desalt and all that, they're, they're making airplanes for hundreds of millions of dollars in a very similar range of aircraft. Oh, hey, you can stand up in it. Yes, you can. That's what he just said. <laughs> Unless you're over six foot, and then... Yeah. Rip. But yes, you can stand up in it. That's one of the benefits to it versus other aircraft in a similar class. So, reasonable airplane. This, specifically, this flight, this aircraft, was on a delivery flight from São José dos Campos Airport in Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Manaus in Brazil, to Fort Lauderdale in Florida, to Long Island, MacArthur Airport in New York. This is being chartered by an American charter company for business aircraft called Excel Air. And this was the first of these aircraft that they were getting delivered for their fleet from Embraer. So because this is a ferry flight, is it part 91? No, there are actually ferry flight regulations. But because this is Brazil also, doesn't matter. I mean, all under any of those regulations. Whenever, but whenever it gets to the U.S., it's still a ferry flight. What would it be considered? There is a Part 91 ferry, but there's also... There's a lot of caveats to that. It's okay. a very complicated thing. Sorry I asked. Nope, it's okay. Technically, I think this would still be considered a charter flight, though. I mean, it's ferry, but it is for the company with paid pilots by the company. So it's, so it's not really any different than the okay. air, the airline just or the company operating a regularly planned flight. But the but but the passengers are not paying for their seats. Correct. I mean, there are people that don't pay for fl- for seats on some charter aircraft either because somebody paid for it, but then Okay. So, things like that happen. Captain for this flight was Joseph Lepore. He was 42 years old at the time. He had 9,388 hours total, of which five and a half on the <laughs> legacy chance. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that makes me feel real good about this episode. Oh, you feel good? All right, let me wait, change wait. that. Well, hold on. So, <laughs> let me change that. He had experience. He did on the Ember 145 family, so it's not like he's never flown this 
family of aircraft But before. listen, Linda, okay? Sometimes different versions of the same aircraft have different things on board. You are correct. So. <laughs> Continuing. The first officer is Jan Paul Pal- Palladino. He was 34 years old at the time. He had 6,400 hours total, of which three and a half. Oh, my God. No, are no. on the legacy. <laughs> Get me off this aircraft. But, I don't want to be on it. But he has 317 hours on the EU. E-135, 145 class of aircraft. So he (laughs) actually has more experience than the captain in this class of aircraft. And the cockpit isn't that dissimilar, actually. I mean, they are very similar. They didn't design this aircraft to be a completely different thing. They really did just pretty much take the same body and... Threw on some winglets and a bigger fuel tank. Yep, that's pretty much it. So made the inside fancy, of course, but that's what it is. So there's very few deviations in the avionics, but we'll talk about it. There are... (laughs) <laughs> Most of their hours, I should preface, on this aircraft to this point have been in the simulator. You know, yep. they haven't had access to this aircraft right. since it's new to the fleet. Right. I mean, you have to get hours somehow, right? And the only way you do that is by flying the airplane. I know, but realizing that this episode is on our podcast does not make me feel <laughs> about this. There's no warm, okay? and fuzzy, no warm and fuzzy feelings There's happening. There's no like, oh, this could turn out great. Right. <laughs> Because it didn't. Could have gone worse. We'll get there. There was a ceremony that day at the Embraer factory to celebrate the delivery of the aircraft to Excel Air, the first Legacy 600 in their fleet. The flight crew attended the ceremony, but then each divided up tasks of preparing the aircraft later in the day, as the day went on, so they didn't attend every part of the ceremonies. Uh, One of them attended the dinner, the other one didn't. One of them was at the ceremonies early on. The other one was only there briefly, but was actually doing preparing tests. So back and forth, the two flight crew were preparing the aircraft for flight, preparing themselves for flight, while all the ceremony stuff was going on. Okay. This included the first officer working with an Embraer engineer to load and use a software on the company laptop for calculating weight and balance for the aircraft. So they had a new fancy software that they could use. The airplane was later removed from the hangar and fueled full. It was not allowed to be fueled in the hangar. Nope. This is a normal regulation. Just just to be clear. Yep. <laughs> Around the world, that is pretty commonplace regulation. Don't fuel an airplane in a hangar. For yeah. pretty easy to so figure out reasons. So many things could go wrong there. Yep. Pretty easy to figure out reason for that one. After the ceremony was completed, the two pilots and five passengers boarded the plane. The five passengers included a New York Times journalist, two Embraer employees... And two XL Air executives. Including the VP. Including the VP. The flight departed San Jose dos Campos at 2.51 p.m. local time. So it departed Sao Paulo. The flight was headed to Manaus for its first stopover for fuel. Shortly after takeoff, the flight crew were instructed to climb to flight level 370, which they did so. They were to fly over the city of Brasilia before continuing over the Amazon direct toward Manaus. When I say over the Amazon, I really mean over the Amazon. They fly over the most nothing of nothing of Brazil. I mean, like, the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you want trees? They got trees. They got trees. You, got, you, want, you want trees? They got, like, a thousand miles of trees. You like trees? <laughs> <laughs> the reporter on board, the New York Times reporter, was interviewed for the Mayday episode, and he said it was absolutely beautiful. Gorgeous. I mean, it is the Amazon rainforest. Yep. And they specifically timed this flight when they did so that they could see the Amazon. Oh, well, that's nice. Yep. Here's a bit of a scenic view. Yeah. The flight climbed a cruising altitude without issue. The flight continued smoothly as they passed over Brasilia and turned toward Manaus on 
Airway route U76, or UZ6, sorry. UZ6, Uniform Zulu 6. Literally, it's a straight line from Brasilia to Manaus. A little while after, from 4.26 p.m. till 4.53 p.m. local time, about one and a half hours to two hours into the flight, the air traffic controller made radio calls to the flight just to maintain contact, but the flight did not respond. The last radio call from the air traffic controller at 4.53 p.m. instructed the flight to contact a different air traffic controller on frequency 123.32 or 126.45, but still no reply from the flight. That said, starting during that period of time at 4.48 p.m., so right about in the middle of all of those calls, the flight crew began trying to make radio calls to the air traffic controller, but with no response after that first call, to which the response for that first call was too garbled for the flight crew to understand. They made 12 separate radio calls with no further response from air traffic control. So there was like a reception issue. Something was going on. The flight crew tried other frequencies on their radio per their charts, their local charts, but with no response. The 57-minute period prior to that, prior to them making calls, yeah. while the flight crew made no communication with air traffic control, none at all, for 57 minutes. They were trying to learn slash familiarize themselves with and do further calculations on their company laptop using the Empire provided software for the current flight as well as the subsequent planned flights. They were doing this. You want me to talk about it? Why they were doing calculations? Go for it. They were doing this because there was a NOTAM they found out for Manaus. Okay. That the runway length was shortened due to some construction, so it wasn't mm. full length. So they're trying to make sure they can land yep. yes. properly at Manaus. But okay. in doing so, they were also spending the time to try to learn the software on said laptop, how to figure out weight and balance. Because the simulator did not use this. Right. <sighs> okay. The simulator did not have the same fuel system for whatever reason. Because it was probably what? designed for the E-135 and not the Legacy 600. <laughs> So, Which is a much larger tank and different fuel system. They're figuring it out. They're stressed, but they're getting there. Yep. A short time later, at about 5 p.m., so now we're after all of those radio calls, the airplane suddenly shook violently, and an enormous sound was heard and felt through the entire aircraft. In the episode, there was an interview with one of the people on board, the New York Times journalist, and he said it felt like every atom in his body was shook by whatever happened. He was shooketh. He was shooketh. <laughs> I was just going to say that. You could say he was shooketh. Everybody on that airplane was shooketh. <laughs> the flight crew immediately noticed that the airplane was having some issues controlling. They began descending immediately. Passengers on board noticed that the left winglet appeared to have broken off. And what was left was struggling with the drag and the forces from the wind. So what was still there was clearly like having blowing around time, in the wind. Yeah. yeah, having a really rough time. This information was passed to the flight crew, who made the decision to try to divert as soon as possible. 5.13 p.m., the flight crew sort of spotted an airport ahead of them in the dense Amazon rainforest. They found the airport on their charts and contacted an emergency frequency. With the help of a Polar Cargo 747 in the area, they were able to declare an emergency to the tower at that airport and announced that they were inbound. At 5.18 p.m. and 3 seconds, so just five minutes later, the flight crew were able to make direct contact with the tower controller at that airport to coordinate their emergency landing. The aircraft touched down safely at Kachimbo at 
5.23 p.m. local time. So they, they had a quite the descent. That was pretty fast. After parking and shutting down their engines, the aircraft was, was met by Brazilian military personnel who boarded the plane and immediately confiscated the passports of everybody on board. Oh, that's nice. Yep. The aircraft had landed at a military base. I was going to say, <laughs> are they at a military base? Yep. So this was not really entirely a surprise, I guess, to anybody. But everybody on the aircraft was essentially taken into custody or detained for the time being by the military. I mean, imagine if some other country's plane just like... Yeah, it's not great. Nonchalantly. Landed at your airbase. Right. Yeah. I mean, declaring an emergency is the one reason you are allowed to land anywhere. Literally anywhere. But if you land somewhere that's like an airbase, a military airbase, probably can expect repercussions anyways, even if you did it justified. That said, once the passengers and crew were escorted off of the aircraft, they could see that not only was part of the winglet broken off, but the horizontal stabilizer was also damaged. Well, that's not great. Miranda's looking at pictures. Yep. The winglet is a non-critical piece of the wing. Right. I will add. So... You can fly without a winglet. You can fly without a winglet. It's not comfy. No. There's actually a picture from a handful of years ago that you can actually find, and you can read the story, too, where... An A330 was damaged on the tarmac at an airport where it collided with another object. I don't remember if it was an airplane or something else. Well, sheared, like a light pole. sheared the winglet off, but there was no maintenance to be had at this airport to replace the winglet. And so they got a ferry permit to fly the airplane sans winglet home. And it was no issue. They just flew it home mm -hmm. and repaired it. There's a picture with a winglet, so you can see, like, that's not a small winglet. Yeah, it's a big winglet. No, it took it right off, yep. All seven on board had survived with no injuries. While they were detained at the military base, the flight crew started getting questions from the personnel about what had happened, which still was far from clear for the crew, too. Like, they really had no idea. I think during the Mayday episode, they were joking, like, eh, we could have hit a condor at 37,000 feet. I don't know what else it could be. Right. They recounted what had occurred based on what they experienced, but they weren't at all sure why it had happened. They really didn't know why they ended up where they ended up without a winglet. They figured they hit something. Mm -hmm. It was during this time that they learned that another aircraft, a Gull Air Transport Boeing 737-800, had just crashed in a remote area of the jungle near the area that they had experienced their winglet breaking off. The realization by the flight crew about what may have happened began to set in about that time. So let's talk about the other one. Goal Flight 1907. This was a Boeing 737-800 with the tail number Papa Romeo-Golf Tango Delta. This was a flight from Monaus to Brasilia to Rio de Janeiro. Captain was Decio Chavez Jr., who was 44 years old at the time. He had 15,498 hours total. Dang. Of which 13,521 of those hours Ooh. were on the 737s. Well, don't you get bored after like 10,000 hours? <laughs> he was serving as an instructor for the 737 for so Gold. No, so, he's no, not he bored. was not bored. He was very busy, actually. He was both a pilot as well as an instructor. The first officer for the flight was Thiago 
Jordao Crusoe, he was 29 years old at the time, so youngin. He had 3,981 hours total, of which 3,081 <laughs> were on the 737. So both of them have almost all of their hours on the 737. I mean, you commit, I guess. As yep. compared to the other pilots we talked about. Yep. Just saying. <laughs> the flight departed Manaus at 3.35 p.m. local time with 148 passengers and six crew. The flight's filed flight plan had the aircraft scheduled to fly from Manaus to Brasilia on the Uniform Zulu 6 airway. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. At a cruising altitude of flight level 370. Oh, no! Wait a minute! <laughs> Hold on! Isn't that like a like a thing? Like you don't have them I'll get flying to, I'll, the I'll, same I'll, altitude hush, going the different hush, ways? Hush your face. I'll get to it. <laughs> we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Miranda's having an existential crisis over here. <laughs> no, no wonder it happened. Who the h- planned that? You're right. Um, technically, no one. Well, get there. We'll get there. <laughs> oh my god! Shortly after takeoff, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to climb to flight level three seven zero, and the flight did so. Their climb to cruising altitude was normal, reaching the assigned altitude at three fifty eight p.m. local time. All was normal, and the aircraft was cruising along over the jungle about one and a half hours into the flight when the aircraft suddenly shook violently and began dipping heavily to the left, and the nose began pointing straight down. The flight crew fought hard for control, but they were unable to stabilize the airplane in any way whatsoever, which began spinning to the left. It spun 11 times all the way around before it finally broke up just before crashing into the ground deep in the jungle. It took some time before the air traffic controllers actually noticed this as the aircraft was in a transition area where it was supposed to change air traffic control frequencies and control sectors. It wasn't until the airplane was overdue at Brasilia's airspace that the air traffic controller in Brasilia contacted the controller before, the, in the, the other sector, mm-hmm. asking about the aircraft, saying that their goal flight was overdue and... The other controller was like, what Gulf flight? Never even saw it. What are you talking about? Hasn't been in my airspace. And Brasilia was like, it's supposed to have been in your airspace for well over 30 minutes No, now. the the other, because it's Brasilia who said, what Gulf flight? That's what he said. And then you said that Brasilia said it's supposed to be in your airspace. Well, Brasilia's talking to the sector controller that he was flying through, and the sector controller didn't even see oh, the airplane. okay. And Brasilia was like, you're supposed to have had that airplane flying through your airspace toward us for the last 30 minutes. And he's like, well, it never was there. Great. Never at any point in time. So, question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Radar-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. This is 2006. Uh-huh. We're not talking like 1980s, no. 1970s, right? No one saw these two aircraft, like... We will get into this. Okay. There is so much happening here. You will note that Nick said that this is a transition period. Right, and I'm sure it has something to do with that, but shouldn't there be a little bit of overlap between radars? There, mm, yes, but there's, there's a, there really is a lot going on here. There's, there's so much more to it than that that's happening in this instance, and you're going to get mad. You're going to uh, get mad. Okay. <laughs> you're going to get mad, and for a lot of reasons. Great. <laughs> The controller stated that there had not been a Gol 1907 flight in its control area at any point in time. Search and rec- rescue services were then scrambled to search for the flight along its flight path. The aircraft was spotted in pieces in the jungle. Emergency services were scrambled to the area. The crash site was an hour trek into the thick jungle. 
So there wasn't like a Roads. path. It wasn't near any civilization. They had to walk a kilometer to get there. Right. They had I mean, an, an hour's trek through the thick jungle to actually try yeah. to even get to the airplane. Uh, I'm assuming it was, you know, it's the Amazon. Yep. So. Once there, rescuers cleared an area enough for a makeshift helipad to get resources and people in and out more easily. It was quickly apparent, though, that nobody had survived the crash. All 154 on board perished. Dang. The aircraft was found in many large pieces spread across, across a two-kilometer area. At the time, this was the deadliest aviation accident in Brazil. That lasted all of six months. Until TAM Flight 3054 oh. happened. With 199 people. Yeah. Refer to whatever episode that was. It was early on. It's like episode 14 or something like yep. that. We'll talk about it. But I think it's episode 17. There's episode 12. Mm, even earlier than that. I was close. There's a lot of changes that happened after both accidents because of yeah. the state of things. We'll get there. Oh, we will. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's all I've got for now. Okay, so listen. When I say this is a perfect storm, I mean my notes are long. So be prepared. We told you, two hours. You gotta be. <laughs> there is an ungodly number of recommendations in this, by the way, and we are not going through almost any of them. Oh, good. And there's a reason for that. Okay. This investigation was performed by the I am so sorry in advance. Centro de Investigación e Prevención de Accidentes Aeronauticos, a.k.a. CENIPA. 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 Brazilian. Yeah, that one. Investigation board. Yeah. And it's... sort of along with that was the NTSB. They had a right. Because of a 737. No, actually. Actually, primarily because of the Embraer. Why? Oh, I'm going to It's a U.S. US. registered US. aircraft, U.S. bound with That's U.S. passengers. Right. The 737, yes, country manufacturer, of course, but. But we'll get to that in the second half. Okay. Slash the end of this half? No, not really. I don't yep, know. Yep, second half. We'll get there. Both black boxes were recovered from the Embraer. Uh, well, the Embraer landed, landed at an Air Force base, so. <laughs> they had them. <laughs> Amidst the wreckage of the 737, the flight data recorder was located, as well as part of the cockpit voice recorder. You see, so nowadays, we don't record on tapes. No. We're a little more advanced than that, but the memory module kind of just broke off and is now in the middle of the Amazon. Well... That and it's sucks. a tube. It's a tube that could fit in my hand. You ain't finding that. No one's finding that. <laughs> Not in the middle of the Amazon. Not for several weeks, months. I don't remember the time period. They eventually find it, but we're not we're not touching that right now. So, investigators sent the three complete black boxes to any guesses? The NTSB? No. You're wrong. They send it to France? Canada. Uh what? Why Canada? <laughs> uh, so they sent them for a readout by the Transportation Safety Board because from what I understand or can fathom, they never really say, but the I think the flight recorders are manufactured there by Honeywell, but the design branch of Honeywell is in the U.S. I'm not entirely sure. They also just didn't really like the Americans at this point. Shot. Because if you look at this from a media perspective, right, an American airline plane basically an american charter plane with american passengers hits a brazilian plane everyone on the brazilian plane dies the all of the americans live not a very good optic no 
So they sent it to Canada. I don't know which of those options, like which of those was actually the real reason. Maybe a bit of both. Thing. But we'll come back to the recorders in a little while. As Nick mentioned, the wreckage of the 737 was spread out over two kilometers, indicating that it broke up in flight. One part of special note that was recovered as a separate piece was the outboard section of the left wing. The damage to this part was unique in that the cross section where it was attached to the rest of the wing was cleanly cut. This may explain why the wingtip of the business jet was missing, and that the attachment point for the winglet had paint transfer matching the wing of the 737. Investigators determined that the wingtip of the Embraer jet sliced right through the left wing of the 737, separating it entirely and, according to the 737's flight data recorder, sent the 737 into a pitch over and spin, spinning a total of 11 times before breakup and impact. They fell from 37,000 feet in less than a minute. That's what happens when you don't have a wing. I mean, they had half a wing. Okay. (laughs) That's not enough. No, not at all. I never talk about this, but investigators never blame the 737 for not being able to recover. There's no They can't recover. No, there's no flight simulator or any kind of training that will help you get out of that because it is a critical flight. If you lose a wing, even half of a wing, you are not able to fly anymore. And that part of the wing also had the aileron, so... Uh, Not good. Yeah, nope, you're done at that point. There's nothing you can do. It's all the physics behind it. There's no wonder they went into a spin, and I mean, there was literally, there was no saving this airplane. Literally nothing. There was nothing. So, investigators went to go interview one of the most important entities in any mid-air collision, air traffic control. Yep. Brasilia's Air Traffic Control Center controls 75% of Brazil's airspace. I think that's by volume. These controllers were absolutely devastated when they realized that there may have potentially been a collision. Some had to be pulled out of the control center because they were crying and unstable. It only got worse when the collision was confirmed. It's any air traffic controller's absolute worst nightmare. When interviewed, the controller for looking for Gulf Flight 1907 said that they had never had radar contact with them and never got any mayday call, which makes sense because the fall was less than a minute. So, okay, before we go on, I'm sure we'll, maybe we won't get into this. Why didn't they see each other? They were at the same flight level going opposite directions. Crossing at a speed of 1,200 kilometers an hour. 1,600 kilometers. 1,600 kilometers an hour. That's an insane crossing speed. This is also cruise flight. You don't really have to be looking out the window at this point. Oh, and the Embraer pilots were looking at the avionics. They were over the middle of nowhere. When I mean over the middle of nowhere, I mean over the middle of nowhere. Also... No major city anywhere close by. Yeah. So, let's keep going. Because there's more implicit explanation for that. Let me know if you need more. Upon reviewing radar footage, investigators found something... Interesting, though, about the business jet. It looked as though their altitude was deviating several thousand feet at a time, all around 37,000 feet. Were they testing the flying capabilities of their new aircraft and may have accidentally recklessly flew into a 737? Investigators in turn went to the pilots with these allegations, and the pilots swore up and down that they flew at their assigned altitude without deviating. Lo and behold, the flight data recorder confirms that. Their crew flew steady at 37,000 feet. Wait a second. That's what Flight 1907 was assigned, as someone so brilliantly pointed out. But the Legacy Jet was also assigned 37,000 feet. Why were they assigned at the same altitude, but flying in opposite directions? I need to know, Linda. 
In this air corridor of Brazil, northbound flights are supposed to be assigned an even number flight level, and southbound flights are supposed to be assigned odd number flight levels. That way, they can fly over and under one another with a thousand feet of separation. 1907 was southbound and was correctly assigned flight level 370, an odd number. Why was the legacy jet flying at flight level 370? In reviewing the flight plan, investigators found that the crew was actually supposed to descend to flight level 360, or 36,000 feet, once they overflew Brasilia. So why didn't they? When asked, the answer was really simple. They were never told to by air traffic control. What? Air traffic control is allowed to supersede your flight plan because they know more than you do. Well, clearly they didn't because they hit another aircraft. So why didn't air traffic control not tell them to descend? So... Investigators interviewed the controllers in charge of November 600 X-Ray Lima. The Brazilian airspace is broken up into sectors. I did mention that it's freaking huge. Please look at the map on our website for reference. When the flight was overflying Brasilia, BRS, right in the middle, and should have been told to descend to flight level 360, they were in sector 5. The controller who manages that sector also controlled sector 6. At 3.50, the flight was handed off to the controller for sectors 7, 8, and 9 while the flight was still in sector 5 and was not told to descend. The sector 5, 6 controller did not tell either the flight or the next controller that the flight needed to descend 1,000 feet, and he had not instructed it. But the descent was supposed to happen while still in sector 5, which the next controller cannot control an area that is not their sector. Yeah, but he could tell them to descend in his sector. Yes. Let me keep going. It's time to get into some, uh, real nitty-gritty. On our website, we have an image showing what each aircraft's label looks like on the air traffic control screens, or their data block, as it's called. First is the call sign, whether that be the flight number or the tail number. Underneath that are two numbers, each three digits with a symbol in between. The number on the left corresponds with the aircraft's actual flight level, and the number on the right is their assigned flight level. If the two numbers are the same, the flight's flying where they're supposed to. That's all fine and dandy, but the Brazilian system has a major difference from just about every other air traffic control system in the world. That assigned flight number, the number on the right, changed automatically based on the flight plan. Most other systems in the world require the controller to manually change that altitude. The controller reported that he confused the two, the controller for Sector 7, I should say, reported that he confused the two and thought the flight was assigned 360 and was flying at 370, which is what he told his relief controller when he then went on break. So now we have two games of telephone right now. Air traffic control never told the crew to descend to flight level 360 in line with their flight plan because they thought they were already flying at 360. So he can, he thought they were assigned at 360 and they were flying at 370. Or 3... Other way around. Yes. So they were assigned 370. They were flying at 360. Yes. That's what he thought. Yes. That's not what happened. That's what Correct. he thought. Well, that's really freaking stupid. You can see why this is really confusing, though. You yeah. You can see why I, the confusion I mean, if, exists. If you th- didn't know, right, if you're not, if you're tired, if you're fatigued, if you're worried about other flights, like... Well, and there's it's nothing... interesting that you, at it. And there's nothing there on the screen that actually tells you assigned actual. Right. It's just two numbers next to one another. Right. That's it. So it's interesting that you mentioned being fatigued. This is when investigators uncovered that the air traffic controllers had some complaints about their working conditions. Yep. Here we go. They reported being undertrained, overworked, and many of them did not have a good working knowledge of 
English. What? You know, the universal language of aviation. There were two controllers for sectors 7, 8, and 9, as well as an assistant controller, the relief controller. Do you know what every single one of them scored on their English proficiency tests? Non-satisfactory, which is not a word in the English language, by the way. (laughs) Just for the irony of it, that's what they wrote in the report. Non-satisfactory. It's unsatisfactory is the word. They didn't even get it right in the report. So you have controllers that are tired, don't understand English. And untrained. And they don't know what anything they're looking at means. I believe the sector controller for Section 7, 8, and 9 had been on the job for a year. He was certified in 2005. He's 29, I think. 27 or 29. One of the two. There's a lot happening here. There's a lot more that's coming, too. Also, can we talk about how the person in Sector 5 just went, oh, hey, you go to this, yeah, whatever, and just handed them off before they left the airspace? Yep. And then, like, didn't do his job? It gets worse. It gets so much worse. So, now the two flights are on a collision course because air traffic control had a very simple mess up. Let's go see what was happening in the business jet cockpit. Investigators analyzed the CBR and found that the crew didn't reach out to anyone on the ground for 57 minutes. Right. That's a pretty long time to go without talking to anyone. It's not entirely unheard of, but yeah, it's a long time. But they were busy figuring out everything, so... That's happening. And they were following their last set of instructions and were flying at 37,000 feet as assigned. Nobody's talking to them, so they're not talking to anybody. Why would you expect a collision at cruise level flight and flying at an altitude assigned by air traffic control? Over nowhere. Plus, when the crew did reach out, they made a lot of calls trying to get a hold of someone. When they tried making a call on the frequency that had worked prior to the 57-minute break, which was 125.05 for anyone who's counting, they didn't get... Any response. So they tried the backup frequencies listed on their charts and managed to get one garbled message that was trying to convey a frequency, but they never got it in full. It turns out that air traffic control had been trying to get a hold of them too. Here we find another error. The crew was assigned that frequency, which is the frequency for Sector 9. And they were in Sector 9. Never. Not at any point in time. But why do they have so many different frequencies... Why is it not labeled on any of the charts? It is. It is. But they were told to use 125.05. Why? Great question. So, Sector 9 is still under the purview of that controller. You might recall he's the controller for 7, 8, and 9. But the serviceable area for that radio frequency only extends 100 nautical miles beyond the Brasilia VOR. Because if you look back at Sector 9, it's not that big. No. Teeny tiny. Beyond that 100 miles, it doesn't transmit, and air traffic control should have known that. They should have told the crew to use 135.90, which is operational all along the uniform Zulu 6 airway, all through Sector 7. So why didn't they? Great question. That's not up to them. Okay, so then who is it up to? Like, I mean, air traffic controller. No, I mean, why did they make the decision to have them use that frequency? Right. That, they're That's un- the question. They're overworked, undertrained. They don't know. It, they it, just made that decision. Like, if you know they're passing through this certain sector, why are you giving them a different sector's frequency? Right. Because, my assumption is because somewhere along the line, they knew, the Sector 5 controller knew that the 7, 8, 9 was all being controlled by the same person, and he knew one of the frequencies for that person. 
So you gave them that one, and it was the wrong one. Why don't they have a list of frequencies for the different they sectors? They probably do, but they probably didn't refer to it. Why not? I don't know. If you don't know the frequency they're supposed to be on, why don't you just look it up? Congrats, you found number, thing number one to be mad about. That's only scratching the surface. Just look it up! It gets worse. But there was something else on the CBR that investigators thought was particularly strange, and it was also found on the 737 CBR, you know, once that was found. And in writing this script hours ahead of time, I anticipate Miranda has been screaming about it for a while now, and she hasn't, so... Not yet. <laughs> Why didn't the traffic collision and avoidance system or TCAS warn Okay, them? listen, Linda, I know we get into TCAS, okay? Mm -hmm. Here's the deal with the TCAS, though. If mm -hmm. both of the planes, TCASs, aren't talking to each other, they're not going to do anything. And they had issues with avionics on the jet. The Man, I really expected you to ask this question, and then you went and logic your way out of it. <laughs> I okay. figured there, it was going to be something like the pilots didn't understand or the TCAS wasn't turned on or something on the commercial, on the business jet. We're getting there. You're kind of right. You're kind of right. I was screaming about it. So for those of you who were screaming about it, let's get into it. Since we haven't talked about it for a while, what's TCAS? TCAS takes in transponder data from surrounding aircraft and communicates with their TCAS systems, and if it calculates that the two of you are going to collide, it will issue a resolution advisory, or an RA, telling one aircraft to descend and the other to descend. This would have been very audible on the CVR, but it was never heard. And the pilots said that they never got an RA. So why not? Investigators found that their transponder on board the business jet stopped transponding for 50 minutes and was likely in standby mode, and was in that at the time the collision occurred. Yep, Miranda's making a face. What? You're not wrong. <laughs> it worked at the beginning of the flight, and it worked at the end of the flight. Was it because they were f***ing around with the avionics on the aircraft? Okay, listen, let's get into it. <laughs> I have my suspicions, and they are not what the report says. So this is where there's a little bit of tea. Yeah. Investigators delved into the service life of the transponder unit and found that it had been previously installed on a different aircraft before being removed when it was found to have been faulty. It was subsequently repaired and reinstalled on this brand new aircraft. What? Why? <laughs> First of all, this is a brand new aircraft. Why are you putting why? a new oh, yeah. Why are you? Why don't you just put a new transponder on the aircraft? Money, money, money. So investigators tested it since, you know, they had it and nothing appeared to be wrong with it. Still. Okay. Investigators tested a couple of theories to determine if the crew inadvertently turned off the transponder. The crew and CBR both showed that this was during the phase of flight when they were trying to figure out landing and takeoff parameters using a laptop. Could they have turned off the transponder with the laptop? Long story short, yes, but only if they were, like, trying to. So the control column is in the way. Yeah. For normal laptop use. Yeah. So you're going to run into the control column first. So it's probably not accidental. The only way that investigators could actually like use the laptop to press the button to turn off the transponder is if it was like flat. Hmm. Like if the screen was parallel with the keyboard, which who does that? Yeah. Nobody. Crazy people. So they deemed this improbable. Okay. 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 Cool. Here's where part of the Mayday episode gets a little bit misconstrued. The cockpit of the Legacy Jet is built with footrests beside the control column so that you can recline during cruise flight. It's actually normal in more airplanes than you think. This is the first time I've heard of it, so it kind of wigged me out a bit. So they're right under the control panel. Number twos and threes. 
There's a picture. It's figure 37 on our website. It's labeled figure 37, I should say. It's from the report. You can go look in the report if you want. There are also foot protectors built in to protect instruments from foot contact, as it turns out. The transponder control unit, which is actually part of the radio management unit. Number one. Is towards the center from each set of footrests. The Mayday episode made it sound as if investigators thought the crew may have possibly turned off the transponder with their foot. Not Wait, so they're leaning back and putting their foot up that high? Correct, yeah. Yep. This is normal, actually, an Airbus, all Airbus aircraft, a lot of Boeing. It just looks so high. It's not as high as you think it is. Remember that this cockpit is extremely tiny. Oh. Well. That's where your knees normally would be. Yeah, that's so. what I'm saying. So, like, why would you want to put your feet up there? Because it's, it's more relaxing than having your feet on the floor. Yeah, you'd probably slide the seat back a little bit so you could put your foot up there, but... In any case... Mayday made it sound like investigators thought that could happen. Actually, in the report, they said that's highly improbable. Because the transponder control unit is located such that it would actually be pretty difficult to turn it off with your toe. It's way more center than if you were just putting your foot up. Yeah. I think they tried to do it and were able to, but it was really uncomfortable. So, there goes that one, too. Not likely. So, investigators narrowed it down to one possibility. The crew had to have inadvertently turned off the transponder when trying to familiarize themselves with the Radio Management Unit, or RMU. That doesn't make sense to me, since they weren't doing anything with the system at the time. Neither reported to be doing anything with a radio. They were trying to figure out fuel. Why would they be touching the radio? I'm also not convinced by that because it's it's not vastly different from what was in the E-135. They should know how this works. Also, you have to press that button twice to turn off the transponder. Click, click. I don't know how you would accidentally do that. Especially when you're fidgeting with all these other things, you know? Like, I don't know. That's what eventually investigators... That's what Sinipa says happened. I don't like it. But the only other thing I could think would happen was that something was wrong with the transponder and they just couldn't find it in testing. Not the first time that's happened. No. But they weren't exactly open to other ideas. I mean, the transponder had been proven to have been faulty on another aircraft. Mm-hmm. Although they fixed it. Allegedly. Hold on, quote, Linda, okay? Right. Because as we know, when people do this and they do it because they want to save money, yep. sometimes they don't do the best job. In any case, the transponder was not transmitting. How it happened doesn't really matter. It wasn't transmitting. So TCAS doesn't work. Great. Is there anything that would have warned the crew of this? According to the report, quote, there are several conspicuous indications of the TCAS transponder status in the aircraft instrument panel. Eight visible indications in all, with two in the RMUs, two in the primary flight displays, and two in the multifunctional displays, when the multifunctional display was set to display TCAS, and the blinking amber transponder reply light in the ATC window boxes on both RMUs, end quote. So, four indications per pilot. Let's go take a look at them. In figure 35, investigators demonstrate where the amber light is. Is it that tiny light? Yeah. A little yellow dot. Oh, that's not going to help. They're not going to see that if they're reclining. There's that, no way. That doesn't matter. I mean, that, that little thing, they're not going to... They're not going to see that. ...think anything of that. They're like, yeah, no. it's so conspicuous. I'm like, it's smaller than the tip of the pen that you're using to point at it. Right. And in any case, like, what... If you don't know what that means... Yeah, how would you why know would that you, there's an issue with TCAS? Why would you think anything of it? In the same picture, on the primary flight display to the left... Miranda, how fast can you find where it says TCAS? <laughs> Not very fast. On the display to the left, the far left of the screen. Am I looking at... Yeah, I'm looking at the left. Mm -hmm. The black screen? 
Yeah, where does it say TCAS? Oh, it's in the corner. It says auto. Yeah, yep. so this this was on their example, so it didn't say TCAS off, but it would in the same font. That yeah, took you way too long. Uh, and I was looking for it. Mm-hmm. Right. If they ain't looking for it. There's no way they would have known. The big problem with that one is the colors. It's white text on a black background. And in most aviation, that means it's just information. It's yeah. not, there's no warning. It's not important. It should really have like red text. So it's off. If it's off, yes. And Yellow or red. Yes. I don't know, maybe an audible alarm. Just yeah, a thought. Yes. On the RMU, which is on figure 67, it... The word standby is also very small and is printed in green. Okay. Which green has the connotation of... It's good to go. Yeah. So again, not something you have to pay attention to. So those are their four conspicuous warnings on each side. The one on the multifunctional display that was mentioned earlier is also white on black, but also is not present when you're looking at your fuel screens, which they were doing. So... There's that. Also, when you're in cruise flight already and you confirm that TCAS was working at the beginning of your flight, why would you feel the need to look again? Also, you're assuming that ATC is looking at you too. So You're I mean, right. Why why would you think that there would be a problem with you hitting another aircraft? Right. Because if TCAS was off, you'd assume that tower controllers, the ATC controllers, can find you and tell you to descend. I would also assume that TCAS would yell at you if it was off. You would think, but it's not designed to in this airplane. I wonder if they knew that. That I don't know. I don't either. And they never talk about that. Who knows? But air traffic control has a way of knowing if a cruise transponder isn't, I don't know, transponding. Do you remember in that data block that I mentioned earlier that there's a symbol between the actual and assigned altitudes? Mm -hmm. That symbol changes to a Z when not using transponder data. Whoa, look at that. The aircraft symbol also changes from a circle with a cross in it to just a cross. It is the controller's responsibility upon realizing a loss of transponder information to contact the crew and alert them of this. Guess what didn't happen? Well, if they don't know what that means... You're right. How are they to know they're supposed to contact the flight? You're also, gonna... they're, the flight's not on the freaking right frequency anyway, so who knows if they tried, if they'd even be able to hear them. Right. You're, you're going to get really mad later. <laughs> the transponder failure also explains why earlier the altitudes from the radar data seem to deviate from 37,000 feet. Once the transponder is not sending data, the air traffic control system begins using primary radar data, which is much more inaccurate and can vary in thousands of feet in altitude. Neither the controller nor the relief controller noticed these changes. Investigators did not go in depth with the extent to which a supervisor air traffic controller would have helped or if one was involved at all because all air traffic controller supervisors refused to be interviewed. Or you can get subpoenaed in court. (laughs) No, they can't. We'll talk so much more about that later. No, they can't. There's a reason for that. Saniba also spent a large portion of the report going through all the ways in which the crew was unprepared for the flight since they didn't have a standard operating procedure through Excel Air since it was a brand new aircraft. Right. The flight plan was prepared by Embraer, the manufacturer. Right. Since that's where they were. And not Excel Air since it was an aircraft delivery. That's actually pretty normal. But the crew also wasn't working with an SOP. They divided up their duties according to experience. Their actions may have also been influenced by the fact that, I don't know, their boss was on board. The crew had also never worked together up to this point. 
The subject that was the biggest time suck on board was the whole fuel consumption issue, which the crew was particularly concerned about because their simulator time for the Legacy Jet was not on a simulator with the same fuel system, particularly in regards to the fuel transfer feature on the new extra tanks. Investigators considered the crew to be operationally underprepared for the flight. I personally don't blame the crew for that, for being underprepared, since do you know when they were given the flight plan? That day. When they were already on board and taking off in half an hour? 30 minutes before the flight. That's not their fault. No, it's not. That left them half an hour to prepare for the flight that they were just given the waypoints for, which take how long to input into your flight management system? Well, not only that, but you have to do a walk around, you have to do a whole bunch of stuff and checklists before you're even allowed to turn the engines on. I mean, come on. Now, the CVR does not cover that time frame, so it's hard to say how much the crew is really able to digest that flight plan. I will say, though, that the... CVR on board the Legacy Jet actually covers two hours, not just the standard half hour. So that was pretty cool. That's pretty good. Um, so now some things to talk about. So the reason that the NTSB got a little more heavily involved was this was not a completely unbiased investigation. So in Brazil, well, let's start, in the United States, ATC is run by the FAA. Airlines are controlled by airlines. Investigations are all done by a completely separate, independent party. Okay. Everything in Brazil is controlled by the military, including the investigation. So the reason that I particularly called out that they called out the flight crew was they had every reason to try to blame the Americans. They had every reason to try to blame somebody else. And not themselves. themselves. Which it really wasn't the Americans' fault. No, not at all. Like, at all. They weren't set up for success, but none of it was actually, like, the crew's fault. Even if they inadvertently turned off the transponder. Because you know that and you say that, you're going to get really mad (laughs) in a little while. So that's kind of why the NTSB stepped in and was like, hey, you're not going to call out all of your controllers as much as they should be called out? Because they're not trained? There were so They're not doing their jobs. There were so many failures here, and maybe, sure, a couple of them were probably the pilots. But I would say the majority of this was air traffic control failure. There is one party completely not at fault here. Goal. And nothing to do with this. Nope. They were literally flying where they were supposed to fly. But they are the only ones with the really unfortunate consequence of what happened. Yeah. Because, I mean, first of all, what I don't understand with... You said Embraer made the flight plan, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why have them take off and climb to 370 and then change to 360 when you could just have them go to 360 and maintain that altitude the entire time? The airways they were on. And I'm sure there's more, like, there's yep. stuff I don't realize that's complicated, especially around an airport. Because I it also has that. to do with east to west. So around the world, the way this works internationally so they they brought it up in the episode as north to south but in actuality it's primarily east to west right you are flying eastbound you fly at an odd level if you're flying westbound you fly at an even level their initial track had them flying west eastbound and then they went west and then they turned and went west okay so on the eastbound track they should have been at 370 because it's an odd number and on a westbound track they should have been on an even number 360 so it actually makes a lot of sense why they were given what they were but, yeah, as soon as they made that turn, they were supposed to be given a different altitude. They weren't. 
And if they didn't know that, which they didn't, and if the, you know, first air traffic controller didn't do his job, Mm -hmm. the other air traffic controller clearly didn't understand how to read the radar, so he couldn't have fixed the problem. There is so much going on here. They were given the wrong radio frequencies. No one told them that their transponder was off. Another thing that I didn't bring up at all, I didn't script to bring up at all. So after the collision, the business jet tried making emergency calls. Internationally, there is one frequency on which you can make an emergency call and someone somewhere is supposed to be monitoring it. That is 121.5. Yep, 121.5, everybody knows. They made three emergency calls on that frequency, and no one answered. In most places around the world, it's the military that monitors this frequency. Like in the U.S., 121.5 is always monitored by the Air Force. So that's how they know that there's emergencies going on anywhere, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are in the country. In Brazil, they weren't listening. At least not where Isn't they were. Isn't that, like, against world regulations? Like you would think, and yes, more than likely, but also they just... They got really lucky that that cargo flight was listening to 121.5. It's good practice, actually, for some airlines and some operators. They train their pilots to use their secondary radio to monitor 121.5 when they don't have a purpose for it, just so they can actually hear this kind of stuff in the event they're needed. And guess what? They were needed. Because oh, the military in Brazil messed up real bad. On multiple really bad. fronts. <laughs> really bad. Oh, and by the way, through this entire investigation, the crew has been detained and is being kept in a hotel room, not allowed to leave, nor any of the passengers. Talk a little bit but more. they didn't do anything wrong. We'll talk a little bit more about everything that happened after this in the second half, because that's the part where you're going to get super infuriated. All right. Well, let's take a break. Let's take a break. And then we'll get into that. On that note. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We're back. Okay, so we're going to do some findings and some recommendations With the caveat that these are coming from the Brazilian report. Because of that, I actually skip most of both. Talk about why in a little bit. We already kind of did, but there's there's good reason to not. And it's part of why the NTSB was like, (laughs) we have stuff to say about this. Yeah, I got some things to say. Boy, did they. So... I am, like I said, skipping many things. They're not wrong in everything. So I'm trying to pick and choose the findings and the recommendations that I feel are still very pertinent. They found that the crew of November 600 X-Ray Lima received from the SJ ground or Sao Jose ground the incomplete clearance and understood that the flight level 370 was authorized all the way to their destination. However, according to the active flight plan, the clearance limit for the flight level 370 was the vertical BRS VOR. So as soon as they were over BRS, the Brasilia VOR, that's when they were supposed to change altitude. But air traffic control only cleared them for 370, and that was a communication mistake tied with a misunderstanding of what was actually going on tied with poor training. Right. So many things going on here. 
They found that seven minutes after the aircraft had passed over the Priscilla VOR, November 600 X-ray Lima transponders stopped working and transmitting on the Mode C aircraft altitude and consequently deactivated the TCAS of the airplane, a fact that was not perceived by the pilots. They found that the CVR of November 600 X-ray Lima indicated that the attention of the crew was focused on solving issues relative to the performance of the aircraft for the operation in Manaus after they learned of a NOTAM limiting the length of the runway of the airport. It might be noted, too, that they didn't get that NOTAM until they were airborne, but that should have been included with their pre-flight docs. Right. Their dispatch stuff. So that's the thing. Because they only got it a half an hour before, they probably didn't even have time to look at such a thing. They found that the ATC-01 of Sector... 7, so the first controller of Sector 7, did not notice the information alerts relative to the loss of the Mode C and did not take the prescribed corrective actions. When transferring the responsibility of the aircraft to the relief controller, ATC-02, the ATC-01 of Sector 7 told him that the aircraft was at flight level 360, thinking he was already flying at 360. ATC-02 of Sector 7 started trying to make contact with November 600 X-ray Lima 34 minutes after the last two-way radio contact, so it had been a long time since they had talked anyways. They found that the assistant controller of Sector 7 handed off the November 600 X-ray Lima aircraft to Air Traffic Control Center, AZ, and said that it was at flight level 360, but did not mention that it was without radar contact, without altitude information, and without radio contact. All things that are, like, important. Big giant red flags to most air traffic controllers on Earth. You want yeah. to be able to talk to them and see them at any second. And if you are missing any one of those pieces, your primary function should be getting that back. Yeah. And for them, they're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't care. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. So let them go. Makes you think they probably deal with this on a regular basis. Oh, that's a horrifying thought. Yep. They found that despite the fully visual conditions at the moment of the collision, there was not either visual perception of the approach or an evasive action attempt on the part of the crews. Yes, they were in visual conditions. One, they probably weren't looking out the window because they were over the middle of nowhere in an air traffic-controlled airspace on a flight plan. So why would they? It's so hard to see oncoming traffic. They are coming literally dead at you, and they are a dot. Until until, they're not. Right up until the couple of seconds they're not. I mean, it's like, boom, it happens like that. It is unbelievable how fast this actually happens. Found that the airplanes collided, whereas their crews did not receive any warnings from the respective TCAS systems due to the fact that the transponder of one of the airplanes, November 600 X-ray Lima, had stopped transmitting 54 minutes before the collision. They found the loss of the transponder reply from November 600 X-ray Lima made it impossible for the radars of the ACCAZ to warn the controllers of the imminent collision due to the lack of altitude information. Duh. Yeah. They didn't have correct information for the aircraft, so they didn't know they were on collision course. They found that the damages caused to the left wing of the goal aircraft by the collision rendered the airplane uncontrollable by its pilots. Yeah. No, really. And the last one I am going to read. They found that the tests of the November 600 X-ray Lima TCAS and transponder were performed and indicated normal functioning without detection of any failure. So I brought that one up only because I know we talked about it, but still, they could never prove that something was actually wrong with the transponder. But it's not to say it wasn't. Yeah, it turned off. Right. And they don't know why. Right. There are a lot of findings I didn't read. Again, really good reason for that. Now for the recommendations, which were at the top of the report. When I say at the top, I mean they are before the history of flight. They're before the synopsis. Also, there's no probable cause, you may have noticed. Yeah. Uh, There's, like, more than seven pages of contributing factors. Which they consider to be the probable cause. The way that our 
ever-phenomenal resource of Wikipedia, wraps it up. On December 10th, 2008, more than two years after the accident, Sanipa issued its final report describing its investigations, findings, conclusions, and recommendations. The report includes a conclusion section that summarizes the known facts and lists a variety of contributing factors relating both to air traffic controllers and to the legacy jet's flight crew. A variety of contributing factors relating both to air traffic controllers and to the legacy jet's flight crew. According to Sanipa, the air traffic controllers contributed to the accident by originally issuing an improper clearance to the Embraer and not catching or correcting the mistake during the subsequent handoff to Brazilian Center or later on. Sanipa also found errors in the way the controllers handled the loss of radar and radio contact with the Embraer. Sanipa concluded that the Excel Air pilots also contributed to the accident with, among other things, their failure to recognize that their transponder was inadvertently switched off, thereby disabling the collision avoidance system on both aircraft, as well as their overall insufficient training and preparation. Which part of that wasn't even their fault! Right. It was a brand new aircraft with different avionics. They had no idea the transponder was off because someone, (laughs) ATC, should have told them. And they were trying to figure out how to get all the stuff done for the aircraft so they could fly the next leg of the flight. Right. So, with that said, there's a lot of things very wrong with that. And primary of which, I mean, they okay, so they blamed the air traffic controllers in some regard. Which, it's never to place blame, but they do find okay. that air traffic controllers are at fault quite a bit, and that is important. So that's the other part I wanted to bring up, and I didn't really have a good time to until now. So, per the ICAO, aircraft accident investigations are to be performed under the premise of prevention. They should never be to cast blame, especially for legal purposes. Right, right. Because when you do that, people become untruthful. Yep. They're less likely to tell you what actually happened. More likely to lie so to your face. it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And... That's also hard to do when the guy who's investigating you... Is your boss, basically. Is in the same military complex you are. Probably outranks you. Yep. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But that is a really big thing that went wrong here. Let me do some recommendations. Of which... There were 65. Jesus. I am not doing 65 by any means because most of these are incomplete thoughts, incomplete actions, repetitive, and don't actually fix the problems they intend to fix. Because there's just one overarching thing that really needs to happen. But we'll get there. They recommend to ensure that all SISCEAB controllers, so the controllers, the air traffic controllers Mm -hmm. for the military, Have the required level of English language proficiency, as well as provide the necessary means for that purpose, so as to comply with the prescribed SARP, as defined in ICAO Doc 9835 and Annex 1. So I have a really fun example of why the English language proficiency thing is an issue. Yep. It did not contribute to any, uh, anything. Right. But when the XL air jet was first taking off, the crew asked air traffic control what altitude they should climb to and the air traffic controller was like can what would you ask and so they repeated themselves and then the air traffic controller did the thing of i still can't understand you but i'm not gonna ask again (laughs) he just gave them instructions to taxi to the runway and still didn't tell them what altitude to climb to it wasn't until they were like taking off that they were finally given what altitude to climb to. Which is an initial altitude. It has nothing to do with the flight level 370 or 360. It's no. only what they're supposed to climb to on their initial climb out but for they, airspace purposes. I think they asked three times. 
what altitude do you want us to go to? And the controller couldn't answer. Right. That's why, and we ran into this with another episode not that long ago. Mm -hmm. You have to be proficient in aviation English. Right. If you're going to work in a, you know, business where they speak mostly English. Yep. You have to be fluent in aviation English. Right. They recommend ensuring that all air traffic controllers fully comply with the prescribed air traffic handoff procedures between the adjacent air traffic controller units and or between operational sectors within the unit. When you hand off one flight to another, make sure that they are fully aware of what that flight is doing, where they're at, why you're handing them off to them, what they're doing next. There's a whole thing, and this is why, actually, air traffic controllers usually use what's like the slip. They either have a physical or now a digital version of that. The slip where they can enter information, all yep. of this information about the flight, and then they just literally hand that to the next guy. I Physically or digitally. Yep. I hate that. Gives them all the information. You recommend to ensure that the prescribed procedures for air ground communication failure are fully complied with by the air traffic control units. In other words, when you're not getting in touch with them, don't just leave it be. Be like, I don't know, it's fine. Yeah, Next. No, that's an emergency situation if you can't get a hold of a flight. Right. If you're not hearing from them after a certain period of time and they're still flying, which they just figured, ah, they're still on their course, whatever. I don't know. Maybe they heard me. Maybe they didn't. In reality, in the United States, when you don't talk back after a certain period of time, they scramble fighter jets. Yep. Here they come. As they should. Which, by the way, this is a military run thing. Exactly. Why didn't they do that? They have direct communication. They didn't care. They did not care. Or they didn't realize how much of an issue it was because of their lack of training. Right. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, part of it. They probably were never told this was a thing to be aware of. Like, yeah, if a flight doesn't talk back to you, you should probably, you know, figure out the problem. Right. And find a solution. And sometimes that solution is, let's call in the military to make sure that there's no one on this aircraft that's not supposed to be flying this aircraft. Right. Type of deal. Or like... Helios, where, like, everyone was, uh... Passed out. Passed out. Incapacitated. Yep. So, I mean, because you never know why they're not talking back. Worst yep. case scenario, it could just be, oh, hey, sorry, we can't hear you. Oh, you mean best case scenario? Yes. They recommend implementing in the software used by the air traffic controllers a new presentation, effective alert system, at the ATC radar screens for information concerning the loss of mode C so as to increase the situational awareness of all traffic controllers. And this is pretty standard in most radar control areas around the world these days. What is it? Literally, when they, like, lose mode C, mm-hmm. they'll start flashing on the screen. Oh, yeah, you way. know, that's much better than changing a single character. Right, they'll start flashing on the screen, and they, they'll they have, like, a certain warning. Like, it works like an airplane. I mean, they have, like, a warning system that tells them, like, hey, this airplane has this issue, just so that they know. Seems pretty straightforward when you're using a fully digital system like they were. I don't know. Skipping forward a lot. To excel our services, they recommend to reevaluate the CRM training program of the company and insert a plan for systemic recurrent training. This, it's not to say that they didn't have CRM training, but actually it was brought up even by the NTSB that CRM lacked a little bit in the flight crew of XLR, which they're not saying caused the accident. Nobody no, is. But Although the Brazilians did try to blame it on them, but... Part of that is they didn't have a standard operating procedure for that aircraft. Right. Granted, they could have followed some other standard operating procedures, but they weren't told to do that either. This was a very irregular operation this day, to say the least. Crew that had never worked together on an airplane they never worked on before, with situation they'd never been in before, flying a unique flight for a unique reason, learning new systems. I still, you know, playing Monday Night Quarterback, I realize this, but... Mm -hmm. Being a, they were 
very experienced pilots. Yeah. yeah, both of them had worked in commercial aviation before, so they had some form so of CRM training. The fact that they can't get a hold of ATC and they don't try for a long period of time. No, oh, they did. Well, they, but they, there was a, a point in time. So they made a series of calls, right? They couldn't get a hold of anyone. And then there's this huge span of time where they didn't try to get a hold of anybody. Well, and no, they that's tried not entirely true. They were talking to them before that, that big gap with communication perfectly fine. Yeah. Then was, they just started doing what they were doing and nobody talked to them for 57 minutes. So they didn't talk. Back. It was after that, that they tried to reach out. After that, they, they didn't realize they were out of range of the radio they were on. And suddenly they couldn't talk to them anymore. Before that, they had plenty of communication, no problem. Oh, I guess I did not understand that during yeah, yeah. the that's, story. That's yeah. not the issue. That's yeah. not what I understood. No, that, that wasn't was. the issue. The issue was that they were given the wrong frequency when they were communicating, then they stopped communicating, and when they tried to communicate again, they were out of range of that frequency. So then they made dozens of calls on different frequencies. And they actually did make a very concerted effort to try to get in touch with somebody. Because then the accident happened only a couple minutes after they were making all of those calls. So then they had to make an emergency call through the emergency frequency. So they were very concertedly, once they realized they couldn't talk to anybody, trying to get in touch. They kept changing frequencies and trying to talk to people. In that circumstance where you're trying dozens of times on who knows how many frequencies, mm -hmm. should you just go to 121.5? Not necessarily. Because it really is reserved for emergencies. Non-communication isn't an immediate emergency. But what there is is a transponder code you can change to that says no communication. And what will happen then is they can do an all broadcast across frequencies to give an airline to give an aircraft. Oh, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. To give them instructions to contact what a certain frequency. My other question was because I know we talked about how they went through all these backup frequencies. Mm -hmm. Did they have the frequency for the sector they were in on any kind of chart? Yes, and they were trying that. They had on the chart, they had a series of frequencies for the area they were in, and they kept trying them but getting no responses. I bet you it was that same list that I just showed. Yep. A few of the reasons that they didn't get in touch with anybody was they misput in the frequencies a couple of times, and some of the frequencies were unmanned and shouldn't have been. Oh my god, guys, come on. In case you're curious, by squawking 7600, ATC will know you've had a communications failure. Correct. Yep. In case you care. The all emergency squat code is 7,700, but 7,600 is lost no comms. communications, right. So, exactly. So, and they didn't use that at any point in time because they did start to get in touch with people, but also they had an emergency situation before they ever even got to the point of having right. to use that. Maybe they should have used it. Maybe then they would have figured out their transponder was off. It's a good thought. Not proven, though. Which, by the way, they did recognize in flight after the collision that their transponder was off. They did. Uh, they're almost immediately after they, they hit, checked actually. for TCAS. They're like, why didn't TCAS say anything? They didn't know that they had hit something, but they thought maybe it was a possibility for one. And two, they were actually looking at it for transponder purposes to issue an emergency. And I think it was the second in command asked, is TCAS on? And the pilot in command said, TCAS is off. And there was a quote unquote, not direct quote, but from what I remember, awkward silence of like uh oh uh -huh. yeah pretty much <laughs> we screwed up uh-huh also <laughs> which may not have been their fault by the way if it was the transponder no. itself it wasn't their fault by the so way tangentially um every time they talked about 
the American crew swearing. They did not say expletive. They yeah. literally said bad word. Yeah, they oh. wrote a bad word in the report. <laughs> made me giggle a little bit. It was about the only bit of levity I had here. So continuing on. I'm not doing too many more recommendations. So we're almost done with this part. And then we'll talk about the stuff that really make you mad. They recommend to set up protocols to be executed by the pilots and supervised by the operations sector, aiming at the strict compliance with the standards of cockpit doctrine described for all the flights conducted by the company. This is still to excel air, by the way. Basically making sure that they're following standard operating procedures is the gist of that. Yeah, but they didn't have any for this aircraft. Right. And that's kind of what they're getting at is have they say to set up protocols. To be executed by yeah, the pilots? Yeah, before you use an aircraft, make sure you have a standard operating procedure what you're going concept. to use on it. Right. They recommend to revise and update the general operations manual of the company, as well as the Excel Air operative specifications in view of the acquisition of Embraer 135 business jet aircraft. Pretty straightforward. They recommend to reevaluate the criteria for the operational training of the pilots assigned to flights outside the USA, especially within airspace under the ICAA rules concerning the preparation, planning, and execution of the flight, aiming at keeping an adequate situational awareness through all phases of the operation. And I really argue that they weren't not aware. They just were following the instructions they were given. And they were pretty aware of where they were. That wasn't the issue. Which is what exactly the NTSB said. Yep. So this is where really... They start to deviate heavily, and it's why Brazil was wrong. <laughs> because Not entirely. Not entirely, but it's how they used this information that was wrong. We'll get there. They did this for a reason. Separately now, they recommend to ensure the conformity of the certification of pilots working for the purchasing companies in the process of aircraft delivery and receipt. So this is basically to the body that certifies aircraft. They say... When a company's aircraft is certified within Brazilian control, Embraer, mm-hmm. it should be required that the crews are trained on their international regulations, everything that's required for them to flight plan and prepare and fly within Brazil when they're delivering or receiving an aircraft. Well, maybe Brazil should conform to ICAO standards. You're that's right. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, aren't they in the ICAO? Why aren't they doing the standards put up by the ICAO? That right. Way- Crews don't have to learn a whole separate set of rules. Yep. Here's a loaded one. They recommend conducting an internal recurrent training for all air traffic controllers. Yes. Well, no, Sherlock. But first of all, you have to train them before you do recurrent training. That's <laughs> what I have to say about that. Maybe you should just do training. Yes. Let's put everybody in a room and actually run them through how to do their job. Because obviously they didn't know. They recommend establishing a minimum level of proficiency relative to the English language consistent with the requirements of the BCT specialty and with the aims of ICAO for 2008 as a criterion for the classification of CFS candidates at the training center for their air traffic control. Duh! Yeah. Also for air traffic controllers. They recommend in the CFS entrance exams include specific criteria for psychological and medical selections as prerequisites for the classification of candidates in the BCT specialty. Did you just say that your controllers aren't stable? Basically, because also you're overworking the crap out of them, so of course they're mentally exhausted. That's what Duh. happens. You now for the NTSB. You will note that I skipped almost all of that for them because... Meh. Really unnecessary. Do you go through the NTSB's findings? Stand by. Do we have to go through all of them? No. They only had 16. Oh, well. They're also very short. Theirs are entirely devoted to both how, yes, of course, things went wrong, 
on the Embraer, mm-hmm. but mostly how air traffic control messed up handling them. Um, which was almost every way imaginable. Yeah, like every way. So I don't really need to get too deep into it because you kind of understand the gist that the NTSB is like, no, really, it's air traffic control's fault. It's entirely their fault. Yeah, because when TCAS is off, ATC is the backup. Right. Really? And nobody it's was the other way around. And nobody technically. Was, it's both. It's both. One's but. the backup for the other. It doesn't matter which way you go. And the reality is, is that they weren't doing anything about it. They weren't doing anything to fix this problem. So the flight crew didn't know this was a problem on an equipment they weren't super familiar with and Embraer didn't design to be super conspicuous. So really, they placed the blame on the air traffic control, something that Brazil only did a little bit of. Why that's really important is because of, again, what they did with that information afterward, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the NTSB doesn't agree. And so they wrote comments, and Brazil was good enough to actually include those comments in their report. But it was a bit of a pew-pew back and forth. They were definitely at odds. They did agree on a lot, though, also. They did also agree on a lot, yes. Which, the person who ran the investigation for Brazil, you can't really blame him because he really was trying to be pretty impartial. But he had a lot of pressure because of the entity he was involved with which is the military. And he was also ranked. Yes, he was also ranked. So again, I could go through all these recommendations, but I don't really think I need to because it's pretty redundant. It's all about, like, they found that the air traffic controller did not take appropriate action in response to the loss of November 600 X-ray Lima's transponder. They also prematurely handed them off from Sector 5 to Sector 7. Yep. All the things we basically already talked about. These are all the things they already know. If you want to read the probable cause, though, then we'll go into the really important thing. The evidence collected during this investigation strongly supports the conclusion that this accident was caused by November 600 X-ray Lima and Gulf Flight 1907 following air traffic control clearances, which directed them to operate in opposite directions on the same airway at the same altitude, resulting in a mid-air collision. The loss of effective air traffic control was not the result of a single error, but a combination of numerous individual and institutional air traffic control factors, which reflected systemic shortcomings in emphasis on positive air traffic control concepts. Contributing to this accident was the undetected loss of functionality of the airborne collision avoidance system technology as a result of the inadvertent inactivation of the transponder on board November 600 X-ray Lima. Further contributing to the accident was the inadequate communication between air traffic control and the November 600 X-ray Lima flight crew. So they blame the air traffic controller three times in there. (laughs) And the pilot's inadvertent right mistake right nothing was intentional here right that's the key thing they didn't do anything on purpose they weren't purposefully being negligent in any way they were actually doing everything as best as they could per sop they didn't realize that they had made a mistake and you can't blame them for that remember that for a little bit now i'm gonna transition over to wikipedia again best of sources Mm -hmm. yes that was vaguely facetious after this accident there came to be what is known as the Brazilian Aviation Crisis. Right after this accident. If you look it up on Wikipedia, there's actually a page for it. It's the 2006 to 2007 Brazilian Aviation Crisis. Because between this and TAM, yep. two Problems. big accidents, yeah. they suddenly realized that maybe, perhaps, possibly, their air traffic controllers weren't actually... Not great. Yeah. So... Amid rising tensions, the air traffic controllers began staging a series of work actions, including slowdowns, walkouts, and even a hunger strike. 
I believe the Mayday episode at this time said that 40% of flights had an hour-long delay or more. Yep. Which is a lot. This is a particular problem, and... It's a problem with the industry as a whole. It was militarily controlled, and it was controlled poorly. So you're asking, you might be asking yourself, why is this military controlled unlike other countries? Well, in Brazil, prior to it becoming a democracy, it was entirely military controlled. The entire country was run by the military. Until 1985. Right. In 1985, they got a civilian democracy set up. When they did that, they left most facets of the government and the country controlled by the military. This is one of them to this day is still controlled by the military. Yep. Which I have to say, as long as you follow proper procedures. Right. And you're not putting pressure due to rank on ATC controllers to make bad decisions. Like right. overworking them or things like that. Right. It can work. I right? still don't like that Sinipa is part of the Air Force, though. I don't, I don't like the investigative authority being part of the military. It is a non-independent source, which is an issue. And it, it probably is independent in most instances, as long as the military is not involved in it. But it will never truly be independent until they break from the military, until it is no longer run by military personnel. Correct. So... Someone can always pull rank. Right. Always. Right. And a big... This reminds me of Soviet Russia. Well, it gets worse, because what they did with all of this information was they decided to make it legal. They went into the legal system. What they did was they decided to prosecute the air traffic controllers that handled these flights. Even and though it wasn't their fault that they were undertrained and over and the pilots. They decided to try to the prosecute The pilots didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> they decided to try to prosecute the two pilots from Acceler. However, however, they tried this initially immediately after the accident when they started piecing things together because of course everybody wanted somebody to blame, right? So they immediately put the blame on the pilots before this is long before the report was out, which was two years later. And four Brasilia based air traffic controllers. And four Brasilia air traffic controllers, but. For exposing an aircraft to danger. Right. However, one judge, thankfully, finally. Dismissed the charges of negligence against the pilots on December 8th, 2008, but left in place a charge of imprudence. That's long before, that's long after what I'm talking about. Okay. Two months after the accident, a judge finally said, you can't hold them any longer because we can't prove they did anything wrong yet. So they finally had to give them back their passports in December 5th, on December 5th. That's when the pilots finally got to leave Brazil. They were in Brazil for two and a half months because they still had their passports detained. So they couldn't leave. Finally, a judge was like, okay, you can't hold them anymore because they really weren't, they can't be held at fault with all the information we have and we've seen. This isn't their fault. So one judge understood this. As they went further along, they still decided to prosecute. Other judges decided to prosecute them, as well as so, the air traffic controllers. So let me read this. Yep. So on December 8th, 2008, a, judge, a federal judge dismissed the charges of negligence against the pilots, but left in place a charge of imprudence. He also dismissed all charges against two of the four controllers and reduced the charges of the other two, but brought new charges against a fifth controller, the one based at... Sao Jose Dos Campos, which was the original departure point. Mm -hmm. On January 12, 2010, like a little bit over a year later, his ruling was overturned by a different judge in a federal court in Brasilia, reinstating the negligence charges against the pilots. This is one of those stupid 
judicial systems where it has he the said, weird. She said, "We're not done. Screw it!" Like everybody it, oh wants somebody to blame and get something out of, and it's not their fault. So on October 26, 2010, a military court convicted air traffic controller Sergeant. Joe Marcelo Fernandez dos Santos sentencing him to 14 months in jail for failing to take action when he saw that the Embraer's anti-collision system had been turned off. He was to remain free pending the outcome of the appeal process. Four other controllers were acquitted for lack of proof. On May 17, 2011, Judge Mendez sentenced air traffic controller Lucy Vando Tiburcio de Alencar to a term of up to three years and four months, but ruled he is eligible to do community service instead and acquitted Santos on charges of harming Brazil's air transport safety. The day before, Judge Mendez sentenced the two pilots to four years and four months of prison in a semi-open facility for their role in the collision, but commuted the sentences to community service to be served in the United States. Brazilian authorities accused the pilots of turning off the transponder moments before the air accident and turning it on only after the crash. But this was denied by the crew in a deposition via video conference. Mendes said in his sentence that pilots had failed to verify the functioning of equipment for more than an hour, a length of time he called an eternity in aviation. Okay, but there was nothing conspicuous to tell them there it was, was wrong. There was nothing on the aircraft to tell them that the TCAS was off. There was no oral warning that if, the transponder wasn't working. If they were purposefully ignoring an oral warning and a visual warning that was actually a warning and not just information, yeah. On October 9th, 2012, Brazilian federal prosecutors announced that they had successfully appealed the sentence to increase it by 17 months, for a total of five years and nine months, the new trial was scheduled for October 15th, with the pilots again facing trial in absentia, meaning not being there. On that date, the court upheld the prior convictions, but modified the sentences to 37 months for each pilot, requiring that they report to the authorities and stay home at night. In October 2015, Brazil's Supreme Court rejected the pilots' appeal, ordering them to return to Brazil to serve out their sentences. So they wanted them to return for the five-year sentence. And they have asked that they be extradited from the United States, and they have not been. No, because they didn't do anything wrong! And the United States Of course agrees. the United States is like, f*** you, Brazil, we're not giving you our, you know, people when they didn't do anything wrong. They right. didn't commit a crime! They're literally it just- It wasn't a crime! <laughs> They're literally just trying to find somebody to put blame on because they want somebody to pay for what happened. The ATC controllers, the training given to the ATC controllers, it blame the be, military. It should be on the generals. Blame it shouldn't the military. Be on the air traffic controllers. Do not it's blame not the, air traffic the pilots. And it's not on the air traffic controllers. It's on the general. Well, okay. The air traffic controllers weren't doing their jobs, right? Yeah, but if that's you, only because they weren't trained. I understand that. But if you're going to put blame on somebody from a surface level. Yep. It goes to them first, not the pilots. Now, right. we know ATC was not trained properly, was overworked, and had no idea what half of the shit on their screens meant. Right. Which means that wasn't their fault. It was the people who was training them fault. Yep. So if you're going to, you know, put somebody in jail, yep. put the people who are training the people properly in jail. Yep. Or put the just people who designed the system in jail. Do what you're supposed to be doing and give a report that has nothing to do with being sued or right. put in a criminal or quit tried in a criminal trying, court. Quit trying to place blame and fix the problem. <laughs> fix the flipping problem. Because this is what they don't understand, and this is why. So I'll talk about this now. The NTSB's God. other appendice to the report. Was there comments about the report that Brazil put out, which was you're wrong <laughs> in every sense. What they did was issue a very detailed comment section 
where they actually went in and said, these sets of recommendations, here's what's wrong with these, these sets of recommendations, here's what's wrong with these. And most of them were like, I'll give you an example from a whole set of the recommendations that they gave. And the wait, there's more news. Oh, this is on jet options. Okay. This was posted January 17th, 2019. Yesterday, Brazil's regional federal tribunal shortened the sentences of the two pilots. In May of last year, so May of 2018, they were acquitted in absentia of all but one of six charges. So they kind of got rid of their sentences. Their sentences were reduced from four years and four months down to three years, one month, and ten days. So they still have the same problem. They also struck down the suspension of their pilot certificates, not that they get to do that. Right. It's still trying to place blame. It's still the wrong thing. They still did it wrong. I wonder what those pilots are up to. I don't know. They probably can't fly internationally anymore. Well, they probably can, just not to Brazil or anybody who likes them. Yep. (laughs) Sorry. I completely cut you off. So, the NTSB, I'll give you an example. About a whole section of recommendations, here's what they wrote. These recommendations should have references either in the recommendation text or in the body of the report explaining or indicating the content of the procedures. Otherwise, there is no way to determine if the procedures are adequate. The whole gist of that is, what the heck are you even writing about? Like, this doesn't make any sense. If you give no context, all you're doing is writing to error. Like, you can't actually fix anything if you can't describe in detail what you're trying to fix. Another one. There's no direct discussion of flight path offsets in the report or any discussion about the role that a lack of offset procedures played in the accident. Also, because the word offset is capitalized in the report, it would seem to need a definition somewhere. <laughs> These recommendations should identify what aspects of crew resource management training contributed to an identified safety deficiency. The NTSB currently has an open recommendation regarding CRM training for on-demand Part 135 operators. The NTSB recommendation A-03-52 asks the FAA to do the following. Require that 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 135 on-demand charter operators had that conduct dual pilot operations, establish and implement a Federal Aviation Administration-approved crew resource management training program for their flight crews in accordance with 14 CFR Part 121, subparts N and O. The whole gist there is they're like, this is what a real recommendation looks like. Whatever you wrote doesn't matter. You know, what's really funny doesn't do about anything. that. It's like the same thing as per my last email. Yes. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's entirely what the NTSB did here. They were like, the they are like, you couldn't have written a poorer set of recommendations for your report. And on top of that, they do criticize basically the rest of the report throughout all of this because they just don't believe that anything they're doing here is right. They're placing blame rather than actually finding what's wrong and fixing it. That's not to say that Brazil didn't change things because they did. Number one thing that changed after this, by the way, the defense minister that was in charge of all of this, the investigation, the air traffic control, and their regulations as a whole in the country was outed after TAM because the country finally realized that it was their fault and not the pilots. So why are they still being... Because somebody still wants somebody to blame. It has it to do... happened literally over 10 years ago. You're correct. Get over it. Right. Fix the problem. Drop the charges. Because right. it wasn't not their changing fault. changing anything. And it wasn't ATC's fault. Because they weren't trained properly. It was literally the mixture of things that happened that caused them to hit the other airplane. Right. Right? So, like, don't continuously try to get these people to serve 
sentences on something that they didn't, they did nothing wrong. There was no negligence there. There wasn't anybody at fault. It was purely a series of circumstances that shouldn't happen because of bad regulations. So there's no reason for you to say, oh, but they still have these three-year sentences. Why? There's no reason for them to have three-year sentences. Exactly. You're just pissed off because your country sucked. That's <laughs> exactly. why. So a lot of things have also changed in Brazil as far as their air traffic control system, but it is still controlled by the military. There are some facets of it that are civilian driven, but it is still military. They did change a lot of their training programs. They did change a lot of that because of the crisis they had through 2006, 2007. They realized that the country was bleeding money because they couldn't figure out how to do these things. So they actually put a lot of time and money into doing things the way they were supposed to do it in the first place, let alone just doing them per their own SOP. So these are a lot of things that actually ended up happening afterward. Fix the problem. Brazil's airspace is safe to fly in. It is one of the busiest airspaces on Earth, as a matter of fact. It is still one of the busiest aviation countries in the world. And they've made it much safer to fly in, but only after they had to go through so much work to realize they had a lot of deficiencies. It took some very unfortunate circumstances for that to happen, though. And this was one of them. I'm not really going to get too much more into anything. If you really want to read it, there's so much more that the NTSB and Sinipa had to say about this accident. And you could read the back and forth all you want. That plane is still flying. It is still flying, the uh, Excel Air Bird, the, the Embraer. I mean, they just had to replace... A winglet and an elevator. And an elevator. Yep. And it was they updated avionics a little bit too, but it now flies for a company in Mexico. It actually flew for a different company in Mexico, and now it flies for a different one. Its tail number is now X-Ray Alpha Foxtrot, Foxtrot Lima Yankee. Yep, correct. Or XA Fly. XA Fly. How you get that one, I'm pretty surprised. They took a lot of effort in that, because... Yeah, it's a charter. It's now a charter, a business charter in... Mexico. It just flew yesterday. yesterday. It landed in Monterey yesterday. Oh. All right. Well, there you go. That's the our midair collision for today. I, I don't really want to say both flights and flight numbers. That's fair. Goal flight 1907 and November 600 X-Ray Lima. Yep. Thanks so go. much for listening. We do have a couple listener questions. Oh, dear God. We'll only do one because one of them's from Lieutenant Spock. Ah, yes. Listen, my friend, we love you, but it's too long. So we're going to do the one that I can actually <laughs> answer and we'll do yours in the next episode. Okay. Uh, this is from our patron, Carmen. Excellent. She says, just wondering if it's possible to put into the Patreon descriptions of the episodes if there is an air disasters episode about it like you do with the resource part of the website. I listen from the Patreon app because sometimes the website doesn't load correctly on my phone. Actually, it is on pretty much all of them. I, I put the resource part of the mm -hmm. post on the post for Patreon. Now, I don't know how far back you're listening. Right, yeah, because it may not have happened. Because it may ones. not have happened, because there was a point in time where Nick was doing it. Yeah. And then when I took over, I started putting that in there, and I didn't retrofit all ones. of the old episodes, because yeah. there was too many of them. That's something we might be able to get around to someday. Yeah, but it should be, at least on current episodes, go into the actual episode it should actually, if there's an Air Disasters episode, it should be there because yeah. I always put the resources part of that into the Patreon post. Yep. Always. So. Thank you for the question. Yes. There's your answer. I'll clarify. There you go. Again, it, I don't know how far back you're listening, so you might not have gotten to the episodes yet where I've started to do that, but at least for the past 
hundred episodes, yep. I would say I have been doing that. So just so you're aware. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Thank you to our patrons. You guys are awesome. You helped this stay sustainable. We have an editor now because of we you do. guys. It's fabulous. Which really helps us a lot. Oh my God. It's one giant you're less amazing. thing to think about. Yes, and it's so much easier. And they're getting paid from that Patreon money. So So thank you. Thank you for helping us make this a little bit easier on us. Yeah. So we can keep making content for you guys, and we appreciate that. If you want to see what's included on Patreon, feel free to take a look. I mean, we have tiers from $2 all the way up to $20. So take a look. It's on our website. It's on Patreon if you want to look us up. You can also do a custom amount amount. If you want to do under $2, you won't right. get anything for that. But if you want to support us and you're like, eh, you know, $2 is a little too much, which believe me, I mean, I get it being on a budget, my friends. Okay. Yep. So if that is the case, just take a look and, you know, maybe you'll be surprised. But you get actual really cool stuff when you get to the tiers that you get stuff for. So yeah. thank you so much for listening. Remember to submit stories and all that good stuff. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.